Tonight's episode of Legacy Battle is brought to you by Atlas Benefits. Atlas Benefits has solutions for your insurance needs. Atlas Benefits can help you obtain Medicare, health, or life insurance, and employee benefits. You can find them on the web at www.atlasbenefits.com. Or you can contact Rob Ducey or Roy Smith at 727-600-2892 and mention Legacy Battle Podcast. Atlas Benefits has all the solutions for your insurance needs. Enjoy the show. Legacy Battle, make sure you hit subscribe, whatever you're listening on YouTube, iHeart, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple, iTunes, Podnods, we're on everything, hit that subscribe button, I am Michael Adams, creator of Legacy Battle, my panelists tonight from the Gridiron Battle Zone, Brian King, and Legacy Battle Zone wrestling specialist, Phil Pusateri, our special guest tonight, we're joined by a former WWE TNA wrestler, Impact as well, um, he's a current professional bodybuilder. And he's a former American Gladiator. He's part of season two of Tough Enough, which I think he would have won uh, if not for injury. He's held wrestling titles in the NWA, OVW, RKK, World Tag Team Championship two times in TNA. He's an entrant in the 2004 Royal Rumble. Man, he tossed the hurricane about 20 yards out of that Royal Rumble that year. Part of Brock Lesnar's uh, 2003 Survivor Series team. And currently he's the city commissioner of Longwood, Florida. He's been known as Gamora, the Beast, and the blueprint, it's Matt Morgan. Matt, thank you for joining us. Wow, what a build-up. Thank you very, very much. <laughs> Way to make an old man feel good. Thank you. <laughs> We're honored to have you here. We're going to talk to Matt about his career after our debate tonight, and also he's part of the Longwood Historical Society. Um, it's a charity. We're going, to, we're going to talk about that as well tonight, and we'll, we'll tell you how you can donate a little bit later. But tonight's debate is going to be the greatest era of wrestling. Let's jump right into this, and we're going to go with the golden era. Brian, you're up. All right, so the golden era, commonly known as 1982 to 1992. Uh, the main thing that kicked off this era in 1982 was when Vince McMahon purchased his father's business. A year later, he signed Hulk Hogan to be his future superstar. Uh, Hogan had some experience in the AWA, and his popularity was already soaring, uh, especially after he played Thunderlips in the movie Rocky. So meanwhile, Ric Flair defeated Harley Race in the NWA World Heavyweight Championship match, which proved not only that Flair was destined to be a superstar as well, but that also a closed circuit wrestling event could be successful. So you could bet that, uh, that McMahon was taking notes on this because this opened the door for the first WrestleMania, which ended up becoming a yearly event. And it's like known really as like the Super Bowl of wrestling. So now to understand the golden era of wrestling, you kind of have to understand, you know, the 1980s. Um, you know, in the 70s, America was kind of in a slump. I mean, you had all kind of political things that happened, everything. And then, you know, it started to change fortunes in the 80s and the patriotism really, really soared. 
And so you saw in the entertainment that the American, you know, Americans were what they loved. I mean, you had Rambo and Red Dawn and Rocky and Top Gun. And so Vince McMahon, he wisely saw this and he infused a lot of patriotism into uh, the stories that went on in the 80s. And I mean, you had Hacksaw Jim Duggan with the with the flag and the two by four and you had uh, Sergeant Slaughter and Macho Man. And, and of course, you know, coming out to Rick Derringer's I'm a Real American, you had Hulk Hogan. So McMahon, he set up the perfect villains as well during this time. I mean, you had the Iron Sheik from Iran. Uh, you had Nikolai Volkov from the Soviet Union, Andre the Giant from France, uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper, and, of course, Ted DiBiase because, you know, everybody hates a rich guy. So some other great storylines from this era was the great rivalry between Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. You know, picture behind me here. Uh, WrestleMania three, they those two fought each other. It was just bigger than life. Um, the rivalry between Macho Man and George the Animal Steel uh, over Elizabeth was a big one uh, during this time. Uh, some of the some of the great betrayals, like uh, when Orndorff and then later Macho Man turned on Hulk Hogan, and uh, and then there was when Bam Bam Bigelow, of course, entered the WWF, and all of the managers like Jimmy Hart, Bobby the Brain Heenan, and Mr. Fuji all jockeyed to sign him. Uh, perhaps the most important rivalry that emerged. Uh, during this time was the one between the WWF and the WCW. As the AWA and NWA kind of both fell away, guys like Ric Flair, the Steiners, Lex Luger, and Sting all helped the WCW in their popularity, while other superstars like Cactus Jack, Rick Rude, and Ricky Steamboat left the WWF and helped bolster the WCW. So during this era, we found we, we saw the first wrestling video games, action figures, WrestleMania, other big pay-per-view events. We saw the first time the big celebrities would make their cameos during wrestling events, like Cindy Lauper, Mr. T, Muhammad Ali, Tommy Lasorda, Refrigerator Perry, Alice Cooper, Ozzy Osbourne, and, and even Donald Trump. And the popularity reached new heights. Uh, it was pretty much family-friendly. And personally, I'm really thankful to have experienced this era because this is like a big part of my childhood. So, Matt, I'm very familiar with your career. I know these were kind of the guys that you grew up on and, and, and were emulating and looking up to. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts on the era as a whole? But this was also like kind of the end of territories at, at this point. Yeah. So, so something to point out, and he definitely touched on it. The mid major part of that is obviously when Vince Jr. bought out all the territories um, and, and, and understood and was ahead of cable television hitting such a boom and becoming such a prevalent force in how we were going to start watching pro wrestling. Another huge staple of that, he touched on it as well with Cindy Lauper, is the MTV Rock and Wrestling Connection. That was enormous. That did monster, monster, monster ratings that we will never, ever, 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 ever see again. I'm dead serious. Um, and... I remember, we remember that as a kid. It was everywhere. Wrestling, Vince did such a good job with this. And it was getting wrestling and Hulk Hogan. They were everywhere. Hulk Hogan made the front cover of freaking Sports Illustrated at this time. That's how enormous this era was. So when people talk about the Attitude Era, I don't like snicker at it. I don't laugh at it. I don't put it down. But I will never compare that to this era of wrestling because without this era, we're not watching. I don't even think wrestling would be still still around. I don't. I think it would still be. It would eventually 
because eventually everyone would see it's a work, even though, you know, it did take Vince to come out and say, hey, look, we're sports entertainment eventually, right? But eventually the cat would have been out of the bag with the advent of, you know, iPhones and camera phones and and, and, and the internet, obviously, right? So obviously everyone would have, in America would have learned it to work, but, instead, but you wouldn't have had a mega WWE conglomerate at the time, the New York Yankees. You wouldn't have had that. Instead, you'd have all these different broken up independent companies that would not, in my opinion, be able to hang on and last. I really don't think so. Um, so like people put him down all the time for going in there and, go, and swallowing up all these different companies. But I mean, if he didn't do it, I, I don't think wrestling would have turned into what it became. Um, but definitely, definitely the golden era pro wrestling. No question about it. Sarah, that put it on the map, as as Brian said. So let's uh, let's move to the ruthless aggression era. That's going to be fun. <laughs> Thank you so much. Now, I mean, ruthless aggression era. You're talking 2002 to 2008. Uh, you know, the big the big story coming out of that was you know Vince purchasing WCW. Okay, and, and ECW and, and kind of just folding it all together. So, I mean, the biggest storyline to come out of all of that was, I mean, first you had the invasion, you know, with, with uh, Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit and Harry Saturn and them, and, and them invading, you know, WWE. But then also with having all these wrestlers, you know, the big brand split you know, where you have the first draft and you're drafting guys to Raw and SmackDown to kind of divide up the talent, you know, you have the Rock and Stone Cold kind of coming into, you know, the twilight, the Rock starting to become the movie star he was, you know, starting to kind of fade off into, into you know, his new career and, and making money. And, you know, but that's where you had, you know, the huge stars, you know, like, uh, Randy Orton, uh, Brock Lesnar, you know, those guys coming up, you know, Batista, you know, these guys coming up and being the youngest, you know, to hold a championship belt or, you know, work their way up, you know, the, the evolution, you know, I mean, you know, with Ric Flair, Triple H, Batista, Randy Orton, you know, I mean, you know, that, that ranks right up there, you know, with the Generation X or, or with the NWO is, you know, one of the great cliques or one of the great, you know, factions, so to speak, you know, of the era, you know. And, I mean, the rivalries between Kurt Angle and Brock Lesnar, you know, both coming from that amateur background and, you know, seeing seeing the technical classics, you know, with, with you know, the Chris Benoit and, and Kurt Angle, you know, and, and unfortunately – you know, having to deal with, you know, the untimely death of, of these guys, you know, whether, you know, drug-related or not, you know, just, you know, having to deal with these kind of things. And, you know, that was when they started the wellness plan. So, and, you know, I mean, it, you know, the, uh, the NXT, the, uh, you know, where Matt was, you know, on the, I can't remember now, <laughs> you know, coming up through the, you know, ranks and, you know, the, the tryouts and the TV shows and, and just, you know, like building, building on all the different eras, you know, to be able to get to where they were today. 
So Matt, uh, you were in OVW with a lot of these guys from the Ruthless Aggression yeah. era, I believe. I know you've probably wrestled just about all of them. Yep. Uh, so, you know, they had to take over after The Rock and, and Austin took his ball home, as they say, so to speak. Yep. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on this era? And and I guess really yep. Orton and Lesnar are the only two left. Cena's kind of done at this point. Um, but no. uh, they could all no. go. So, so, so here's something funny that not many people talk about. I remember like yesterday, obviously, because it was so impactful. I'm living out my childhood dream. Got signed by the WWE after Tough Enough, and holy crap, I can't believe I'm here. And I'm learning this, you know, in OVW at the time in Louisville, Kentucky. But one thing people don't – I don't know if they know about it or it was never really discussed much, but before it was called the Attitude Era – I remember it like yesterday. They were just, the, the company was still going back and forth on that between the reality era and the attitude era. And I'll say that, in my opinion, they should have called it the reality TV era, reality era, simply because they were going back to real names. Thank God for me that they chose to call me Matt Moore again, right? And not like the masked marauder number two or some crap like that <laughs> that they, cop they would copyright and I could never use again, right? <laughs> but... But they used real names. They started pushing us as what our real sports backgrounds were with a little bit right. of exaggerations, right? Uh, I mean, I could be wrong, but I could have sworn in OVW. They, they like, called me like a two-sport All-American athlete maybe, but I, that's not, that wasn't true. I played sports in college on scholarship. But, you know, but that was more of the push. It was more about your real, realistic sports background. If you were an NCAA uh, Division One college basketball player that would be included by Jim Ross on, on color uh, during the during your match um, on commentary um, to try to make it look more you know realistic, right? And, and so um, OVW, my very first day walking in there, um, Cena is the one. I don't know why everyone starts their story with that, but like literally, Cena was the one that opened up the damn back door for me to come in to the, what was called the old Davis arena. So Cena was still down there as a prototype when I started. And I remember this, this part of the story with the attitude era was they just bought WCW. When I started with OVW, I was under WWE contract, right? I just finished tough enough to hurt my knee. They still signed me to a contract. Thank God. Anyway, a three-year deal got sent down to Louisville. And as I started, they, I, I, like right before I started, they purchased WCW a little bit, a little bit in front of that. And I remember looking at all these studs down there. I remember calling my best friends up in Connecticut, like you won't believe this Leviathan guy, aka Batista. I was like, this guy is humongous. He's the biggest human being I've ever seen in person, guys. He's like three times my size and width. You've never seen anything like this. He's gonna be a megastar. Same with Prototype, I would say, with Cena. And. I remember thinking, like, well, wait a minute, what's going to happen? Because with all these WCW talents, there's not going to be room. I remember we're being worried about that and thinking, like, maybe we'll be stuck in developmental for quite a long time. Because when I got signed, I was under the impression I'd be down in developmental for probably two to three years, um, as it should be, honestly, to really, really, you know, hone your craft and learn how to perform for the crowds. And you get an opportunity to, to learn from Jim Cornette and Danny Davis. Two to three years would be incredible for me um, and others. But um, as we saw, the WCW purchase didn't really work out. All right. Um, they did do the brand split, as we saw. 
But then you had the SmackDown 5. That's a big part of this Ruthless Aggression story, right? With, like, they made Eddie Guerrero, Kurt Angle, Benoit. Um, who else am I missing? Two others that they called the SmackDown 5. Forgive me. Um, younger, but more diminutive edge, diminutive uh, uh, talents, per, per se. But they gave a real chance and an opportunity to start main eventing a little bit now more and be the focus of a show. Whereas when they were on Raw, they were always underneath that Stone Cold and the Rock main event venter category. Now on SmackDown, they were running bleep. You know, they were doing an amazing job. SmackDown was a better show, in my opinion. Um, then you bring, eventually they finally, the WCW talents weren't working out um, with all those young stars. Sean O'Hare, Mark Jindrak, Johnny Stamboli. Um, they had some really good young talents at W. WWE just kind of like I thought gave up on um, but with that said that opened up the doorway in my opinion to allow the Cena's to come up for some dark matches and tryouts Batista and so uh, um, uh, Randy Orton Shelton Benjamin oh my god he's so good um, and others we had such a stud group um, but they were considered the class ahead of me in OVW I was the next class um, but uh Anyways, that opened the door for a lot of them to get called up. But uh, I remember thinking Prototype was going to be huge. Not, not, not what we saw him become, but I thought like what Cornette would say, like this Ric Flair style of heel because John was such a great promo. He was such a great chicken shit heel on the microphone. Jack muscles out of his eyeballs, but on the stick, he was so good. When we used to do promo classes every Wednesday at OVW Arena, John would practice being the stick guy and interview me and interview all of us at promo class, right? Batista would generally try to sit those out because he was very uncomfortable talking. And so anyways, uh, I'd get in the ring my very first time. And so Cena would be like, so Matt Morgan, it's tonight, uh, rumor has it, it's you versus Manupo. What do you think about, like, just like throw weird opponents out there out of left field that make no sense or rhyme or reason. And you've got to flip that into a good promo within hitting your cues within one minute. And he would try to do everything in his power to screw you up. And so that would that, that would help us, though. It would be funny as hell. I wish they had him on tape. We have to have him somewhere. They're classics. But that's where prototypes started. Cena started learning how to do his promos backwards and do all his amazing promo work. And I remember calling my friends and be like, this guy's the next Ric Flair. If they have room up there on that roster, you guys wait. And then when they called him up, they had him doing the stuff he was, like, wearing his high spot gear in different colors to match the city's football teams and sports teams in each city he hit. I'm like, what are they doing with him? Do they not know how good this guy is? Um, you know what I mean? And back then, I, I wasn't good enough yet to tell who was really good in the ring just yet. Uh, I could obviously tell who was a good promo and who looked like a megastar like Batista, right? But, and then when they brought Batista up, I'm like, they made up Deacon Batista. My friends were like laughing, like, yeah, great call there, Morgan. I'm like, guys, I don't know what they're doing with him. They're stupid, but trust me, this guy's going to be a megastar. Um, he's, you know, and they ended up doing it. But again, it just goes to show you WWE when they bring up these talents, it's, it's frustrating because NXT has it set and has a lot of these guys already and girls already set up with great gimmicks, great characters. And then sure enough, WWE's got to put their, hang on, let me fix your hair, honey, honey, let me fix your hair. And then they screw them up completely. And I'll give you an example. Yes, Batista became a bigger star as Batista than he did as Leviathan, the Demon of the Deep. Go back and watch that character, though. 
That character was super over. And if he was brought up to TV, he would have been a modern-day Undertaker, in my opinion. That character was so dope, so cool, and very scary-looking, and uh, was a cool, cool character, as was Prototype. Prototype was ready to go as Prototype. They should have never changed that. But, again, I was proven wrong because, obviously, John Cena, this John Cena kid, seemed to do okay for himself, right, <laughs> later on. But um, before I go on this, one quick story about Cena that you won't hear anywhere else is he used to take, he was such a good, he was a good dude, man. He treated everybody pretty good, man, especially us rookies. And he, he would drive because I didn't have my car down there yet. He let me come with him in his Jeep Wrangler. And I remember he had a Jeep Wrangler and we'd go eat um, to like whatever buffet was open at the time, right? The cheapest one. And on the way there, all he was listening to was like Quiet Riot and like 80s hair glam bands like that I like. That's my favorite music, like Botley Crew. Right. And so when he became this rapper, I'm like, where the bleep did this come from? Like, you don't rap. When did this start? And he came down to do like a special for us, Six Flags Summer Sizzler series or something like that in Louisville for OVW. And he, he was like a special guest referee in one of my matches. He just got called up. He just started that rapper gimmick at the time. I'm sorry. And I remember like, John, when did you start doing this freestyle stuff? It's like, man, I'm a man of many talents. And then he, he just left it at that. But I remember being like, dude, you're the dude that's listening to 80s hair metal. What's this? You don't listen to rap. You know what I mean? I was really shocked by that and how good he was. Yeah. It worked out great. So, you yep, know, the Ruthless yep. Aggression Air also gave us the rise of TNA, which later became Impact, of course. And uh, they had some pretty good years there for a while. So well, let's move on to the Madison Square Garden era. Um, this was before WWE was even before it was WWF. We're talking WWF World <laughs> Wide so, Wrestling Federation, right? Exactly. <laughs> yep. So we're we're talking from 1952 to 82, and I don't know why every time we do these shows, I get the things that are like 100 years old. But uh, it's also called the Glory Days, not just the MSG era. So the Glory Days, everything was territories back then. Um, the, they dropped that dub, that extra W in 1979 and, and just became WWF. But uh, just some guys who were really big back then. You got Buddy Rogers, uh, you know, Mr. President Bob Backlund, Gorgeous George, Superstar Billy Graham, Dusty Rhodes, Classy Freddie Glassy, Pedro Morales, a very young Andre the Giant, um, Gorilla Monsoon. This was also the era where we got, uh, you know, a couple of women making it big. You had the fabulous Mula and Mae Young. Um, and uh, two guys that I got a name because they went on to have the, the son who is the greatest all the time. You got Pete Maivia and, and Rocky Johnson. Put that together. You got Rocky Maivia, The Rock. So they, they were pretty big during that time period. But the biggest star was Pittsburgh's own Bruno San Martino. Um, this guy headlined Madison Square Garden more than any athlete ever. 187 times he headlined Madison Square Garden. Um, May 17th, 1963, Bruno defeated uh, Buddy Rogers with a reverse backbreaker. This was for his first title reign, and he would hold that title for a record 2,803 days. That's still the record, by the way. Um, 1971, he loses the belt, and then he wins it back in 73 and holds the title for another 1,237 days. Mm -hmm. So you put those two reigns together, that's 4,040 days. That is almost 2,000 more than the second place Hulk Hogan 
So this was dominated, dominated by Bruno San Martino. Um, you know, Paul hey, yeah, go ahead. Can I, add, can I just add three people in there real quick? Frank and Carl Gotch, as well as Lou Thez, who if any – we have old-school wrestling fans in here. If you get an opportunity to read any books on Lou Thez, uh, read one. There's one out there that's also called Hooker. Great story. You guys would love it. Explains what a shooter and a hooker is, obviously, in, in pro wrestling that they used to have back then. Also, Ed Strangler-Lewis, and I'll zip my know-it-all mouth. Sorry. No, no, perfect. Cut in anytime you want. You're the guest. Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, so you got Bob Backlund. He's got the um, – he's third on that longest reign, and he's only about 50 days behind Hulk Hogan. Wow. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that either until I yeah. looked up the stats. So um, if you look at cumulative title reigns, three of the top five are all from this Madison Square Garden era, um, Pedro Morales being the third. So Wow. Yeah, I know. It's shocking. I, I, I was yeah. shocked when I saw that. Um, but you know, matches back then were a lot different than today. We're talking like 30, 45, 60 minutes. This was the norm for a match back then. Um, so, you know, these guys, they might not look as athletic as the people today, but they certainly had the stamina. Um, and they also say that, they say that kayfabe ended with the undertaker, but it really, that's what they say, but it it started, it started with these guys, like. You know, they, they, they were the originers. Uh, they were tough guys. They gave the sport credibility, um, you know, and this is kind of the generation that, that they didn't put it on the map television-wise, but they, they put it on the map in stadiums and selling tickets. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Bruno was the king. Matt, I mean, these are all legends. What what are your thoughts on, on this era as a whole and, and, and Bruno specifically? I grew up in the Northeast, so that was my dad's favorite wrestler, as that was probably every dad's of ours' favorite wrestler. It's, when, it's when my dad's, yep. Right? Yep, mine too. And so, do you remember, though, watching him, though? Like, every once in a while, when we were little, he'd, you know, he'd get in the ring with Piper, or he'd do, you know, a couple of one-offs here and there, or tag with his son, David. Well, I, still yeah, I remember him tagging with David, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyways, I remember being like, well, I don't see what the big deal is. He's this big <laughs> Harry dude, I, I, he's no Hulk Hogan, you know, <laughs> to my dad. And my favorite guy at first was Andre. Uh, he's not as tall as Andre, you know, that kind of stuff. But like, it wasn't until then, um, you know, my dad would always just tell me these stories about him, obviously, because we would, I lived in Connecticut. So that's like a 45 minute drive to New York City. So we were where I lived. So we would go to MSG all the time um, to watch a lot of some of the, the, their, their uh, um, house shows, live events. And, um, but like my dad did it as well when he was little and, uh, would just tell me these crazy stories about, you know, real, real stories. So I grew up like you guys probably didn't think of wrestling was very real. Um, yep. you know, I had no clue it was a work. Um, and, and I liked that. I really did. Um, you know, and much like the Easter Bunny, Santa Claus and all these other good things. If you fans want to have spoilers, stick around later. I'll tell you some others. But um, <laughs> like it ruined, it, it kind of screwed it up for me a little bit. Right. When we hit that age around high school ish, when we find out it's more of a work. Mm-hmm. And now I'm the dork in high school wearing Undertaker shirts and people are making fun of me for it because wrestling wasn't cool. You know, around the time when Doink the Clown was doing, like, the evil Doink stuff, if you remember. Mm-hmm. So I get clowned for it, but I still stuck in there. I didn't care. Um, but it did have that dip, if you remember, of, of cool factor. It wasn't until the NWO came out, then wrestling get cool again. But mm-hmm. um, my, my point, though, when I was talking about Bruno, was just, like, 
oh my God, we'll never see anything like that again. But even those that were before him and his trainers and his people that he, his, his guys that he looked up to, I'm telling you, Ed Strangler, Lewis, Killer Kowalski, um, and again, Lou Thez is, in my opinion, the greatest of, of all time, if you really, really break it down to what many others that are I have a lot of respect for in this business would tell you. Um, but at the end of the day, most people judge on who's the best by, hey, how'd they draw? And it's hard to argue that Bruno San Martino, right? You can't argue against that. Right. That's insane how many times he headlined MSG. Um, but good Lord, like, again, I encourage fans to read some of these older school wrestling books if you can get a chance to, because it's just insane what these guys went through. Like, if you went to a bar after a show and you did not, kick the living bejesus out of some smart mouth that try to get smart with you and you're a pro wrestler and you do not defend that business, especially if you're a heel, you'd be fired for it. No question about it. You get your walking papers for something like that. Um, it's a very, it's come a very far away <laughs> today, right? Yeah, definitely. There's so many classic names, the Blackjacks, Vern Gagne. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Oh my God, Vern Gagne. Yes. <laughs> Well, let's move on to our final era tonight. It's going to be the Attitude Era. Now, because the Attitude Era was so vast between different mm -hmm. companies, we're going to split this up to a minute each. We'll start it out with WCW. Um, I'll take WCW. And people say the Attitude Era started with WWF, WWE, whatever we want to call it. I'm going to disagree with that. I'm going to tell you it started with Ted Turner's checkbook. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Given open reign to Bischoff. He said, here, pay what you want. And, yeah, I mean, in, in the earlier days, they brought over Hogan and Macho Man, but it really kind of really started with the Outsiders, Paul and Nash, um, and going live for Nitro um, for 83 weeks. They won that ratings battle. Uh, you can check off Bischoff's uh, podcast, 83 Weeks is what it's called. You know, they awesome. were dominating. It is a good podcast. Um so, like I said, the Outsiders, Hall and Nash, come over from WWE where they were Razor, Mamone, and uh, uh, Diesel. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> there for a second. Big Daddy Cool Diesel. They come over, and, and they're, they're, they're playing their own names now. It's not this, you know, gimmicky character stuff. And they brought in a, just a, a, a cool thing that had just been missing from WWE for a while. And eventually, you know, we find out there's a third partner. It's, it's Hulk Hogan who becomes Hollywood Hulk Hogan. We get the NWO. It was the coolest thing in the world. Ever. Ever. It was, was, you know, New World Order. It was insanely huge. This was the the, 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 the turning point uh, that really got rid of the new generation era that was going on in WWE. And, and Brian will point on that in a few minutes when he gets, it, gets their shot. Um, the NWO is a thing. The only guy who really stuck out in the, other than the NWO was Sting. Sting turns to the black or to the crow sting. And that, that was a, a really cool gimmick. He was the solo guy for a long time. And then they ruined it when he joined the wolf pack, but I'm not going to get into that. But, um, so, but the turning point ratings wise for WWE to take back control really was when live on air, Tony Schiavone announces that Mick Foley is going to win the title on a pre-recorded show on WWE. Mm -hmm. People turned the channel and they really never turned it back. So with that, we'll jump into the WWE. Go ahead, Brian. So, yeah, I mean, actually, Matt touched on a little bit earlier. You know, in the early 1990s, the WWS popularity began to wane some. 
several superstars, like you said, went to the WCW. Uh, you know, we know we all know about the lawsuit that sort of dropped, you know, uh, dropped down the ratings as well. Um, but McMahon sort of used that to his advantage, turned it around, made himself a made himself like a villain, especially after the Montreal screw job went down. Um, he also created the Monday Night Raw uh, on the USA Network to compete with Nitro, um, and then eventually SmackDown to compete with WCW's Thunder. Um, then, you know, in WrestleMania 10, he introduced the first ladder match, uh, which was a great one between uh, Razor Ramon and Shawn Michaels. Uh, then a few years later, the first Hell in the Cell match uh, between Undertaker and Kane. Um, you know, McMahon also knew that his audience was no longer going to respond the same way to, like, the simpler patriotic storylines of the previous era. So he introduced a lot more edgier uh, stories, you know, sex appeal, uh, you know, profanity, colorful language. Um, you know, he actually made it so there was a parental warning for younger audiences. Um, you know, with this, you know, we saw the rise of uh, Stone Cold uh, Steve Austin. Uh, he was wildly popular. Uh, of course, The Rock. Um, we had, you know, all the crazy uh, in-ring speeches, everything. Um, Triple H, who along with Stone Cold, had the great rivalry with, with Vince McMahon. Um, there was also the crazy uh, Triple H, Kurt Angle, Stephanie, uh, love triangle thing that they had going on there. Um, they had a great, the great feud between The Undertaker and Kane. And, of course, you know, plenty of storylines um, spawned from the G D-Generation X uh, faction when that came along. And, you know, and then, honestly, um, <laughs> you didn't know – you didn't know who um, Nick McFoley was going to be. You had the Cactus Jack thing. You had the Dude Love thing. You had the Mankind thing. And then the one time they had him, you know, he was all of them or whatever. I mean, that was some crazy stuff going on there, too. So, yeah, this was, uh, this was a pretty wild era for sure. McFoley was hardcore, so that moves us into ECW. Take it, Phil. Well, I mean, you know, with ECW, you know, you had Paul Lee Dangerously or, you know, now as he's known, Paul Heyman. And, I mean – he he's a visionary. I mean, he just, you know, to be able to take that in Philadelphia and build a brand like that, build it around all that violence, you know, having the guys like, uh, you know, getting Shane Douglas, you know, another local Pittsburgh boy, yeah. you know, you know, building him up, you know, then you had, you know, uh, the Dudley boys. I mean, awesome. you know, you want to talk about, you know, greatest tag teams, you know, there, there's the Dudley boys there. Uh, you know, I mean, just, you know, that violent, you know, Mick Foley being over there, Terry Funk, you know, in his, in his waning years, you know, the, the barbed wire matches, you know, the, I mean, Sa just Sabu going that. through a table every night. <laughs> Sabu going through a flaming table. Right. Exactly. I mean, you know, that, that's what it was, you know, and, and to watch, you know, that, I mean, it, it, it you know, it was definitely different, definitely different from the WWE and the WCW. You know, it gave people a third option, you know, and I mean, yeah, it eventually came down to money and, you know, that's where they, they just didn't have, you know, the backing and, and the financial backing that, you know, Vince had or, you know, Ted Turner had with WCW. And I mean, eventually, you know, Ted knew he had to get out of it. So, <laughs> so, so Matt... Ratings yeah. were high all across the board for all three of these uh, organizations. The, the highest 
rated moment in WWE was uh, Mick Foley and the Rocks, This Is Your Life segment. That's still the highest rated in, in history. Mid-carters had valid storylines that we cared yeah. about. Even even the lower card guys, like, I wanted to know what was going on with Kai and Ty. I was, you know, they were, they were trying to chop off Val Venus's penis. You know, that was an interesting <laughs> storyline, you know? It was, I agree. And John Wayne yeah. Bobbitt showed up to save Val Venus. I mean, it was great. So, I... <laughs> So I agree with you wholeheartedly in WWE because they're the biggest game in town. They've monopolized this business. Essentially. I'm hoping AEW eventually overtakes them. If I'm being honest, I love AEW, um, but they're not there yet. Right. Obviously mm -hmm. WWE is still a monopoly. So because of that to the victors go, the spoils, they get to recreate history as to how they see it and how they write it and how they put it out and manufacture it out for everyone, all of us to watch these videos of nowadays, right? But it's complete BS. They did not come up with the Attitude Era. W Monday Nitro was when Attitude Era started. NWO was right when that started, in my opinion. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, is right when that all started, for sure. Um, that, you guys, I don't know if you remember this, but like that, that stuff was on the back of the Daily News. Yeah. Legit was on the back of the Daily News, and I was like, "It's Kevin Nash, that's Scott Hall." And I remember being worried a little bit, be like, "Oh, but is that a cool enough name, Hall and Nash? It sounds like Hall and Oates. That's not gonna work, you know." But like again, I, part of me didn't care because we, I was seeing like behind the scenes. I thought, Do you know what I mean? Right. Like this right. was all real to me again in a weird way, and I just was so excited about it. I think everyone was. All my friends were. And then when I got to college, guys, to put this in proper perspective of what Attitude Era was all about, we would have Monday Nitro parties. So we would have – I was on the basketball team, um, and we'd I, I'd live in a suite with other football – with my football uh, uh, guys on our football team too, basketball and football. And so we would have the cheerleaders over. We'd have the dance team over. Um, do you guys still see me? Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, and we would have our own Monday Nitro parties right there in our, in our dorm suite. And we weren't the only ones. Like, we'd have pony kegs there the whole nine. Like, it was a party. Wrestling was as cool as it's ever been that I've ever seen. Like, you had people that I know weren't real wrestling fans quoting, you know, Scott Hall, you know, and doing the fake, the, the you know, the, the, the toothpick gimmick at bars and stuff. Like, it was so mainstream again. You know what I mean? And uh, I know WWE likes to take credit and say they're the ones that started. Just my, my opinion, I, I don't believe they did. Sure, they made it much bigger. DX, Stone Cold, no question. I had a DX shirt, two-word socket. I thought that was the funniest thing ever. I thought I was cool as hell wearing it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But yep. at the same time, it still took the NWO to, to hit first, in my opinion, to become that. And I will say this really quick. Back in that era, the reason why the lower card stars had such great developed storylines was because you got to remember, they were at a perfect point in time, the WWE, for in WCW as well, um, for all these stars that have been owning their craft for years and wrestling in different independent companies all across the country or, or across the world for that matter. Val Venus was a big deal in Puerto Rico before he came over to the States and, and then started to work, not the States, but then started to work for WWE. Um and, and little things like that, right? Brian Christopher, as far as two, you know, Grant, you know, and, and Too Cool, for example, they were big deals in the independent companies that they worked at before they got up there. So they had all these years. Edge and Christian, we know their story, and so yeah. on and so forth. They had so much time to get ring time and develop who they were in that ring. But most importantly, when they got there and the Attitude Era started, 
the writers, Vince Russo and company, they would listen to the talents. Stone Cold got sick of playing the stupid character, Ringmaster. He's like, hey, just let me be me. Give me a chance. And, and kept pushing for it. And finally, they did it. And the rest is history. Today, you can't do that. Today, it is the most manufactured and pasteurized it's ever been. Cookie cutter is an understatement. And that's why you don't have the talents, the studs, and the stars that have been developed like back then that were being just churned out constantly. These deep, enriched storylines with deep characters that we all cared, we all cared about. We cared about Rikishi. We cared about like everybody. Remember? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. because they give talents the opportunity to be themselves, and it, it wasn't as much pushback today. It's like the writers got to do say everything for you. And it's like, how the hell are you going to tell me how to be Matt Morgan? You're not, you never walked an inch in my shoe. So you, so I played college basketball. So what, am I going to get on the mic or talk about it? No. What are you going to, what are you going to, oh, wait, Matt Morgan's seven, six, eleven, three quarters to be exact, 300 pounds. Um, you know what we'll do? We'll have him grunt and growl on the microphone. That's what all big guys do. You know what I mean? Like, is that what you're going to write for me? No, let me be me. I graduated college with a freaking communications degree. You know what I mean? Like, um, I'm not saying I'm the world's greatest promo, but speaking is not my weakness. Um, you know what I mean? So why would right. you, you know, put a stuttering character on me, for example? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, they, they overthink things way too much. And the Attitude Era is the last dying days, of when, in my opinion, when characters got to be themselves. Well, our shout-outs tonight to the ones that just missed the list. The New Generation Era, HBK, was a big part of that. Bret Hart, of course. The Reality Era, CM Punk and Daniel Bryan. Uh, and then just a shout-out to, to Undertaker and Sting, who just, uh, you know, pretty much main event and dominated in about 10 different eras. So I just want to throw those names out there. <laughs> so let's move into our vote tonight. Brian, you're in my upper corner. You guys can vote for any of them tonight. Who are you taking? Man, it's tough. I mean, you, we all brought up some great points, I think. Um, for me, it's you know it's either the either the uh, um, you know the attitude era or the golden the golden era. But I give the golden era just a little bit of a of an edge just because of just how you know how bigger in life Hulk Hogan and, and Andre Giant and, and those guys were back then. And and kind of like what what Matt said, you know, it was kind of you know it was kind of like you know the Easter Bunny or you know you, you felt like it was real. And it just made that, you know, just made it feel like it just made it gave it like such a just a, just such a big feel and everything. So I'm going to go with that one. Phil? Well, you know, thinking about it, I'm going to have to go with the Golden Era, too. I mean, come on. The original WrestleMania was on national TV. Yeah. You know, you, you know, it was it was before the whole pay-per-view thing. And, and to have guys like Hogan and, and, you know, like you mentioned before, Pedro Morales and. Ricky Steamboat, you know, have those guys, you know, bring it and, and and bring that era into it to get exposure on TV, you know, and make it like we all said, we all thought it was real. I mean, that that to me, you know, set the bar for everybody else that has followed since. No question. So I'm probably going to be God man out tonight, but I'm taking the Attitude Era and anybody who watches the show knows that for me, money talks. <laughs> and Austin out earned yep. everybody money wise. He even out earned Hogan, which is a shock. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there was never a time where there was more money coming in than the Attitude Era. So money talks for me. Matt, who are you taking? There's there's nothing wrong with that. I would argue most fans nowadays would say Attitude Era. Um, but 
I, if they lived back when we were kids in the in the eighties, if they were eighties kids like us, I don't know how you say the attitude there with what. Just Hulk Hogan's impact on this business, dude, is the biggest of any star of all time. I know Stone Cold outdrew him or out raised more money than raised, made more money than him, um, as far as the company goes. But there's he's the Babe Ruth of pro wrestling. He always will, no matter what he does. <laughs> he's, he's the Babe Ruth of pro wrestling. He just like without him, it's not where it's at today, in my opinion. And he did it at a very critical time. When Vince and, and Linda McMahon literally spent their last dime on yep. getting that first WrestleMania that was a pay-per-view together. Um, mm. that was, they, they put a lot of gamble in that, a ton of gamble, and it almost failed, actually. There was a lot of behind-the-scenes things that almost fell through. Um, but it, it ended up working. But let, let's be clear, if Hulk Hogan was not in that role, okay, you guys go back in time and watch that first WrestleMania when Hogan's music, Eye of the Tiger hits. Go back and listen to it. That friggin' place goes bonkers. The roof literally blows off the top of that place. But, like, that's how it was all the time for Hogan. And uh, I just have to go with that era. I have to because, again, also that MTV rock and wrestling connection was mm -hmm. huge. Again, it was cool. Wrestling was cool back then, as it was in the attitude, to be fair. So I went for the Golden Age tonight. That's uh, going to give Brian first question. We're going to move into our Q&A. Six questions with Matt Morgan. Go ahead, Brian. All right. Well, I, I'll start off with a non-wrestling question. Um, 2017, you were elected District 4 City Commissioner of Longwood, Florida. What was it that prompted you to get into politics? <laughs> Brother, I hate politics, and I still <laughs> kind of do. Um, I mean, I'm being dead ass. Um, because, like, listen how I talk. I don't even talk about politics. Um because my, I became a dad in 2014. It took me and my wife 12 years of being told we have no shot in heck of ever being parents. Me by myself, I was always told that. My wife by herself was always told that. She could never conceive. And we went through like eight bouts of IVF with ICSI, the most expensive one you can get, essentially. It's like 18 grand a pop. None of them worked within that 12-year window. So we're just now looking into adoption around year 12. She gets pregnant naturally. It's just a huge, huge, seriously, serious miracle. It was I prayed on it every night, dead serious. So finally, I'm holding him in the delivery room. The switch goes off my head. Check, please. I'm done. I was about, not many people know this. I was going back to WWE. I kept it very low, like under the radar, obviously. I, would, I didn't want to spoil it. But I was about to re-debut the Royal Rumble that year, 2014, as a, 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 you know, a special entrant, whatever you want to call it, surprise entrant. But I had new gear made, new boots. I was stoked. I was going to be doing the blueprint stuff that I did in TNA. I was really excited for it. And I had no idea I was going to have that feeling come over me once I held my son for the first time in the delivery room. I literally called them from the, from outside the delivery room, technically, and I let them know I'm, I've become a dad. I, this is something now I need to do. I'm going to be around every day for my son. I've been begging for him for 12 years. Here he is. I'm not going to go on the road five days a week of every month of every year now. I did that for almost 13 years. I'm good. And uh, thanks for the opportunity, you know, that kind of thing. I also called TNA and let them know as well. Um, thanks for thank them for the opportunity in the past. So with that, you start, once you become a dad, I don't know how to explain this other than everything you look at changes, everything, all your perspective has changed. When I grew up, my parents told me never talk about religion. Uh, what is it? Religion, politics, or money, right? That's considered rude is what my mom and dad used to tell me. You don't ever want to talk about this. Well, today we're very far, far past that, obviously. <laughs> I would argue that's why we're so divided, but I'll, that's another, day, another story for another day. So 
I started to pull back the curtain in my city and go, who does what around here? Who's going to be, who leads the uh, environment that my kid's going to be growing up in? And that's what started getting this ball rolling in my head. Residents then started, you know, wanting to get me to run. And I'm like, oh, guys, I don't like politics. That's not my thing. I, I don't like it. I don't, I won't get along with any of them probably. Uh, I think they're all very fake and phony. Um, you know, that's not my deal. But I continue to be a dad now for about my son's now, I'd say about two, two and a half. He's now diagnosed as being severely nonverbal autistic. And that's when I was like, all right, uh, you know what? What's the worst that can happen? I can throw my name in the hat. And then from there to, to run for city commission, I went around knocking on every neighbor's door, introducing myself, telling them the things that I think I can bring to the city um, and changes I can help with. We had a lot of guys that were in office for quite a long time. And our city of Longwood's a beautiful, charming, sleepy little city. We're like a 21st century Mayberry. We're 6.8 miles in radius. Um, it's a gorgeous city, but we had guys that have been in office for a very long time. And they weren't moving the needle, so to speak. They weren't moving the city into the 21st century, in my opinion. Some of them tried, but not many of them, not, not all of them. And then one I was about to replace. Long story short, I get elected. I went from commissioner to deputy mayor to mayor, all within like a 365-day period of each one another. But to be fair, um, in the city of Longwood, the mayor position is really a by-title-only position, uh, meaning the five city commissioners run the city of Longwood. Like all five of us are equal in our daily responsibilities and what we can or can't do, right, as far as policy goes. With that said, every month and every year in the month of May, us five commissioners decide who we want our mayor to be, and we nominate that guy or girl. Um, I got nominated. I got called it twice. And the second time I said, look, if I'm a good leader, I should be wanting to light a fire under the ass of one of my fellow commissioners. And um, I don't want to be a ball hog. You want to share the ball, so to speak, even though the mayor, like I said, is a by title only position, you know. You know, maybe it will help encourage others. You know, you want to be a team player if you're a leader. Sometimes you got to lead from the middle and the back, right? Sometimes. So um, did that. And I was up for re-election 2020 and got re-elected. And I'm here through 2024. And I freaking love it. I mean, I can't believe I ended up loving it as much as I do. Like, I'm obsessed with it. Because you guys get the, I know I'm talking along here, too, but I'm super passionate about it. When I go into Publix or I'm at the gas station, to have your residents come up to you and be like, hey, thank you for deciding to do this. Thank you for helping change this city. Thanks for improving it. Thanks for giving us a $4.5 million, six-and-a-half-acre park that now has concert series in it, a splash pad, things for our kids to do. Basically, thanks for giving a crap about your hometown, man, that kind of thing. That is the biggest high, you guys, you could ever get. I'm dead serious. It's the best high ever. And uh, that's why I like doing it, you know? So, yeah, I've got to deal with dishonest, sh you know, shady politicians every once in a while. And that part sucks, but it is what it is. It's something that I signed up for. You have to have very thick skin for it, too. But wrestling prepared me for that. I was a villain my whole career. People lie about you and make up crap about you all the time. You just got to be able to take it and don't let it deter you from what you got elected to do. You have to be the conduit to all your residents. Phil. <clears throat> Phil, go ahead. I'll be much okay. shorter on my other answers, but that's a can of one question. All Sorry. right, Matt, what, uh, what was your relationship like with the trainers, you know, on Tough Enough and, mm -hmm. you know, even in OVW? I've never been asked that, ever. 
That's a good question, brother. So, like, I see, like, people, like, give credit to, like, Al Snow, Bob Holly, Ivory, and Chavo as, like, my trainers. But no disrespect to them. They're not my trainers. They, like, yes, they did a great job of showing me how to front bump, back bump, lock up when I was on Tough Enough. But you got, people forget I screwed up my knee on that show. So I was booted, man, I don't know, six weeks into it. And I had to have both of my knees scoped or something like that, if I remember correctly. And then they signed me to, so Jim Ross calls me anyway, and signs me to a three-year deal, thank God, based on potential, right? And um, I are, the people that trained me is Rip Rogers, Danny da Nightmare Danny Davis, and Jim Cornette, Jim Cornette, Jim Cornette, and more Jim Cornette. I learned so much from that guy. That guy I felt like that was like my like a father figure, honestly. I grew up loving watching him. I loved hating him mm -hmm. as a kid. I loved hating him as a kid. And then to get the opportunity, you have no idea. My first conversation with him, I'm sitting there pinching myself going, holy bleep. Like, this is Jim Cornette. This is James E. Like, this is incredible. You know, because when I started in OVW, I hadn't seen any stars yet. You got to remember. I hadn't seen anybody on the WWE roster just yet. Just the developmental talents at the time. You know what I mean? So Cornette was the big to-do for me at first. But uh, he ended up being my biggest advocate, my biggest backer. Always defending me when WWE had me stuttering or putting on a mask because I almost they almost brought me up as Kane's brother Abel at one point and they had me wrestling in a mask for like half a year, which yeah. screwed up all of Cornette's OVW TV storylines at the time because I was their champion and uh, just stupid stuff like that. But he always had my back, man. He always believed in me, even when I didn't believe in myself. So I'll never forget that, and I'll always be appreciative. So in TNA, your number one contender match with Sting, I, I kind of. I always felt that was one of your best matches. I know you lost, but yeah. I was I always felt it was one of your best matches. What What is to you one of your best matches? Me versus Kurt Angle, Bound for Glory. I think it was two uh, – I forget the year. Um, God, I'm getting old. Um, Morgan, me, me versus Kurt Angle, no question. Bound for Glory because that was the first time I was being tested with what on paper was supposed to be a 20-minute match. We were – they had multiple main events that year. We were really the main, main, main event, honest to God. we That's how that storyline was booked of me trying to get into the main event mafia. And I go through essentially every character except for Sting because he was a babyface with them, even though the rest of them were heels. But uh, at some point or another, I, I, they had me go through a, a quick storyline with like Steiner and so on and so forth till I get to Kurt at Bound for Glory. My opinion, they dropped the ball. They should have had me go over. Kurt Angle was begging all damn afternoon to change the finish because he's the most giving man in wrestling history. And uh, it didn't make sense because, but at the same time, you can't be a mark for yourself and be like, oh, where are they winning? You know, it's not real. But at the same time, you know the momentum you need to get to that next level. They want me to be a main event talent. You've got to have me be the main event talent in order to get there. I can't just have a great match with him. That was my argument. To be fair, we had a knockout, dragout, great, almost 20-minute match, if I remember correctly, is my by far my coming out party. And uh, ended up, you know, I think in total headlining six pay-per-views with TNA. Um, so it worked in that regard. But, uh, you know, at the time, it was a problem TNA was having with letting the what they considered younger guys, like me, Samoa Joe, AJ Styles, Bobby Roode, James Storm, go over people like Kurt Angle, Kevin Nash, and Booker T, and people like that, because no offense, the writers were marks for him. Just being honest, that's what it felt like. And they respected them a lot more, and it, it was dumb. 
very, very dumb. You have stud talents like that. I'm like Ric Flair had the right idea. Ric Flair told them to book him versus me just so he can put me over to get me ready because I was going to have to be wrestling Jeff Hardy when Ken Anderson got hurt with a concussion issue. I had to headline back-to-back pay-per-views versus Hardy for the world championship. How are you going to get Matt Morgan ready? I always need that big guy, a giant, only needs that one match to then be perceived as a main eventer. Uh, Just what we call stealing a pay-per-view. Um, which many a big guy has done, where they get the guy all jacked, all gassed up as far as, you know, attention goes and getting a, a very big win under that big man's belt, then boom, you can thrust him into a main event really quick and steal that pay-per-view, but the big guy's going to lose. Um, and that's what happened with me. But Flair, he, he comes out of the woodworks and tells them he wants to put me over in a match, so they booked it. Like, just incredible experiences like that. I grew up idolizing that guy, and what an amazing opportunity for me. Even though he was definitely older in his career, but just for him to be able to see, like, what are they doing with you? What the? F- These guys have no idea what to do with you. You know what? Let me handle this. And then, like two weeks later, I'm wrestling them. Right. Uh, Michael mentioned at the outset that you were uh, once once an American Gladiator. So, can yeah. you tell us about that experience? Oh my God! Oh, and, gotta, and was Gina Carano as hot in person as she was on TV? I want to know that. <laughs> I'm sure my hot wife would appreciate me answering that. <laughs> I'm just joking. Um, Gina was as sweet as as it gets. She was such a sweetheart, such a nice person, so humble. She always had this intimidating looking face on her. To be fair, but like once you got to know her, she was so nice. But um. God, what an experience. So I was still wrestling when I did American Gladiators. I would film in L.A. at the Los Angeles Sports Coliseum, I think it was called. And then I would fly to Florida to do my TNA tapings and then keep going back and forth like that. It was hell. And I was at my leanest. Like, I looked like crap, I thought. Um, But um, honestly, I, I almost lost that opportunity because when Hogan had told them they should book a wrestler for this Beast character, they were looking to portray and so all these different wrestlers from like Johnny Stamboli to I think Luther Reigns I think a whole bunch of others that I'm unaware of and I couldn't even tell you who they were um tried out for this character along with other non-wrestlers and then I got in there in front of the producers and I'm like I gotta make a difference I gotta do something they don't forget it can't just be that you're bigger than everybody else because I guarantee you they've had like 10 bodybuilders that are seven feet tall come in here that are bigger than you, man. You got to do something to make them remember you. So I went in there and I made them piss their pants by cutting a promo. As soon, It wasn't like, okay, Matt, now go. Give us your promo. You're the beast. Tell us why you should be the beast. I didn't let them get into that. As soon as I walked in the room, I ripped my shirt off. I threw it at the producer and, and, and I... Uh, and I just started going bananas, old school, 80s heels, screaming, yelling, snorting, snotting <laughs> promo that I knew these producers would think is pro wrestling, even though it's not, even especially then it wasn't. But I gave them that over-the-top stereotypical, and I'm going to beat your ass from pillow to boat, that stupid promo. And, you know, snorting and snotting, all, yelling all over the place, and they bought it. And they loved it, and they scared the crap out of them with it. They thought I was serious because I didn't wait for them to tell me to go or anything. I came into the room like that. And so it worked. I got picked. And long story short, this is the biggest part of the story, is that 
we had an issue because now NBC, after I made the cut and they chose me as the Beast character, they said that um, they have to have first right of refusal on my services. Like I had to sign a contract with them and just independently. I could not be signed to a contract with anybody else that could get in the way of my time on that show. So NBC, so Terry Taylor, who was with TNA management at the time, I love Terry to death. He's a good dude. I've always gotten along great with Terry. But, like, Terry, like, pushed back on them. Like, no, we have first right of refusal on Matt. His contract says as such that he's already signed with us. And so NBC was ready to say, all right, see you later, Morgan. And so I come back to the TNA taping, and Dixie asked me how did it go. And I go, I got the gig. She's like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And I was like, no, it's not, because guess what? Uh, TNA says they have first right of refusal on my services, so NBC's not going to be okay with that. They've already said they're not okay with that. What do I do? And she goes, no, you're doing that, baby. Don't you worry. With her southern accent, she goes, you're doing that show. She goes, you've earned it. And uh, she had her own attorney, her own personal attorney, call them back, set all this up, met them in person, and got this deal worked out where I was able to do both shows. And I got back on the show and, uh, they, you know, and the rest is history. I'm the only undefeated, uh, American gladiator in the show's history, as far as one-on-one -on -one competition goes. Um, and I loved it because it was a green light just to light people up. I love that part because I'm an athlete and you have an opportunity to be in an athletic contest versus somebody versus wrestling. Yes, you have to be athletic, but everybody knows it's a work now. So you're not really beating somebody. They're not really beating you, but on that show. Oh yeah, you are. It's full live. You know, they don't let, let you get to see the contestants previously before you go against them. They love to capture it all on, on on film live. So, like, when I'm being lowered from that cage, that dude's reaction, Brick, oh, God, it was awesome. That kid almost pissed his pants. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm nervous, too, because my first uh, – I'm scared of heights as a guy, says, says the seven-foot guy, right? But I am. And so, like, I'm put up on this uh, – what do you call it? The uh, What are the – What's it called? It's like a pedestal or something, right? Or yeah, you're up on a pedestal, but what's the thing where you do this? Joust. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. Uh, so you're, you're, like, 20 feet above the water. And I'm like, oh, God, I'm going to be such a lummox. I'm going to trip on myself and fly in the water or something like that. And, uh, and I was nervous about that because I hate heights. I do. So, like, as soon as that dude hit the uh, the referee, blows his whistle, I'm like, I've got to end this fast. Don't mess with the kid. Don't get goggy. Just drill him and get it done with. And uh, that's what I did the whole time I was on that show. So I wouldn't <laughs> leave any opening. Because you got to remember, I still have a pro wrestling career that, that I'm all about. Like, I wasn't one of these guys that wanted to do all Hollywood crap and stuff like that. I wanted to be a professional wrestler, mainly. That was my main job I always wanted to do. So, uh, think about what could have happened. Suppose that I get embarrassed by one of these, like, five foot ten guys. Like, yeah. I would never be able to live that down in pro wrestling, right? The blueprint would be like, oh, what a joke. Nice blueprint. You're a blueprint of a joke, Matt Morgan. You know what I mean? Like, something like that. So, had to be very mindful of that. I was taking a risk doing that show because it was all very real. I was very, very proud of it. Phil? Uh, I, I would say this. Um, going back to, like, all the years that I've gone to live events and, you know, even the times I've gotten to go to pay-per-views and stuff, you know, mm -hmm. my favorite match would be, you know, the I was at the Undertaker-Mankind Hell in a Cell match. Wow. Okay? And, I mean, to be there live and see that, 
you know, it's just unreal. So my question to you is what would be your most memorable or favorite live event that you might've gone to before you, you got into the business? Great question. I could, I was a big Sergeant Slaughter, Mark. Okay. He's from Connecticut, like mm-hmm. two towns over from where I grew up. And so like, he was always in like these celebrity softball games, playing with like radio celebrities, right? On-air personalities. My mm-hmm. aunt at the time played in a celebrity game with him. And so he was coming to wrestle at an outdoor like baseball stadium. And I couldn't tell you because I was so young. I didn't know if it was the NWA or if it had it now looking back, or was it just like a really, really good independent show or something like that? Mm-hmm. Because the only stars I really remember, but being very like just my mind exploding, was the Road Warriors were on this card. Oh, wow. And um, so it had to have been NWA, but why? But they never came to Connecticut. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So, but, but they were on this card. And I got some autographs after the show. Um, Chief J. Strongbow was on this show somehow. Jules Strongbow. I have his autograph still to this day. Um, so, like, I say that because that was, like, one of my first in-person pro wrestling mm-hmm. shows to watch. But I, I got to say Hogan versus Nikolai Volkov. Um, God, where was that? That was either in Hartford or the head of an MSG. Mm-hmm. But I remember it came out in the WWE Mag- WF Magazine back in the day and the headline said, the night Hogan saw red. Or the Hulkster yeah. saw red, and that was such a big deal. Like we, like, like you guys were saying earlier, how Vince really tuned into the whole Americana stuff that wave that hit really hard in the '80s with movies and entertainment, and now Hulk Hogan and pro wrestling, right? But that was like we were taught. Remember to hate Russia and hate yeah. like and hate right. Russians, <laughs> and that's what we were like being programmed to think. So like Nikolai Volkov, I hated him. I couldn't wait to see Hogan, you know, slam him and. Looking back, it's like, how could I have ever thought like Nikolai Volkov had a shot to beat him? But I did. (laughs) Even though we knew what was going to happen every match with Hogan, right? He was going to hulk up and to take no more because he can't take no more, right? And start the big bootleg drop in the match. You'd think as a kid, you would remember that's how it's going to end. But I remember being so, I don't know about you guys, being so vividly into it. And like, yeah. you know what, but King Kong Bundy, he's got a shot of beating him at WrestleMania, too. He even got a bigger cage to hold Bundy. You know what I mean? Like, it's going to oh, be yeah. Bundy Mania. I remember being scared it was going to be called Bundy Mania because they said it was. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was so good. God, we had it good as kids. I tell everybody this, not to go off on a tangent, but we had, dude, Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan. We, we had uh, the greatest of all these sports during our era as kids. We were so lucky, especially wrestling. Mm-hmm. So tell us about the, the Longwood Historical Society and where people can donate. Oh, so can I tell the folks at home how nice you were? Or no, I'm not allowed to. Uh, yeah, <laughs> whatever, whatever you want to do. <laughs> I, I want to say thank you to you and your show um, for, for contributing to something I was talking about you before the show, which is something I'm very passionate about, something I'm a board member of here in Longwood called the Longwood Historic Society. So here in the city of Longwood, you just heard me earlier say we're a 6.8 mile radius city, essentially, right? We're very small, modern day Mayberry. But 
our historic district is very important to the city. It's a very rich, almost 150 year history. And we have three historical buildings in that historic district, okay? And it's not the city's responsibility, believe it or not, that oversees it, protects and preserves it. It's our Longwood Historic Society's role to do that. So I joined the society once I learned that and wanted to, to be a part of that. And so um, I wanna thank you because you've already contributed to our Longwood Historic Society, where every, it's a nonprofit organization, obviously here in Longwood, in which every penny that we raise for doing any types of events, the Seven Foot Santa event I just did over the weekend, um, you know, car shows, things of the like that we have opportunity to sell burgers at and hot dogs at, we raise money. Uh, 100% of it goes right back into protecting and preserving those three historical buildings in our historic district here in Longwood. And um, just very, very, grateful to you for contributing to it you didn't have to do that that was just very very cool of you those of you watching at home if you want to contribute you can go to uh historiclongwood.com that's historiclongwood.com i'd be incredibly grateful you'd be helping out you'd be helping me help my city thank you you can also find that information on our facebook group page so if you're watching this on youtube or listening on iheart or apple find our facebook group page join and you'll find that information on there as well if you want to see more matt morgan you can find him on the pluto app on the american gladiators channel also the impact wrestling channel I, i've seen him on both of those uh you know i didn't even know his, that from his time yeah yeah i i uh, i was watching him one night on the impact channel but then it was turned to seven o'clock and i had to move to the glow channel because i wanted to see I wanted to see those ladies wrestle, so that was pretty you, cool. Oh, oh my, we didn't even mention Glow. Glow was so over, too. <laughs> exactly. That was part of the 80s there. So, But we want to thank Matt Morgan for joining us tonight. We appreciate you coming on. This was fun. Yeah. Everybody hit subscribe, whatever you're listening on, too. So, yes. uh, everyone, have a great night. Thank you for watching.